Chapter Five of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Five. Bewildering Guideboard. Soul trying struggles. First snow. Reed Snyder tragedy. Hardcoop's fate. Our next memorable camp was in a fertile valley where we found twenty natural wells, some very deep and full to the brim of pure cold water. They varied from six inches to several feet in diameter. The soil around the edges was dry and hard, and as fast as water was dipped out, a new supply rose to the surface. Grass was plentiful and wood easily obtained. Our people made much of a brief stay, for though the weather was a little sharp, the surroundings were restful. Then came a long, dreary pull over a low range of hills, which brought us to another beautiful valley where the pasturage was abundant and more wells marked the site of good camping grounds. Close by the largest well, stood a rueful spectacle, a bewildering guideboard, flecked with bits of white paper, showing that the notice or message which had recently been pasted and tacked thereon had since been stripped off in irregular bits. In surprise and consternation, the immigrants gazed at its blank face, then toward the dreary waste beyond. Presently, my mother knelt before it and began searching for fragments of paper, which she believed crows had wantonly pecked off and dropped to the ground. Spurred by her zeal, others were soon on their knees, scratching among the grasses and sifting the loose soil through their fingers. What they found they brought to her, and after the search ended, she took the guideboard, laid it across her lap, and thoughtfully began fitting the ragged edges of paper together and matching the scraps to marks on the board. The tedious process was watched with spellbound interest by the anxious group around her. The writing was that of Hastings, and her patchwork brought out the following words. Two days, two nights, hard driving, cross, desert, reach water. This would be a heavy strain on our cattle, and to fit them for the ordeal, they were granted thirty-six hours indulgence near the bubbling waters amid good pasturage. Meanwhile, grass was cut and stored, water casks were filled, and rations were prepared for desert use. We left camp on the morning of September 9, following dimly marked wagon tracks courageously, and entered upon the dry drive, which Hastings and his agent at Fort Bridger had represented as being thirty-five miles, or forty at most. After two days and two nights of continuous travel, over a waste of alkali and sand, we were still surrounded, as far as I could see, by a region of fearful desolation. The supply of feed for our cattle was gone, the water casks were empty, and a pitiless sun was turning its burning rays upon the glaring earth over which we still had to go. Mr. Reed now rode ahead to prospect for water, while the rest followed with teams. All who could walk did so, mothers carrying their babes in their arms, and fathers with weaklings across their shoulders, 
moved slowly as they urged the famishing cattle forward. Suddenly, an outcry of joy gave hope to those whose courage waned. A lake of shimmering water appeared before us in the near distance. We could see the wavy grasses and a caravan of people moving toward it. It may be Hastings, was the eager shout. Alas, as we advanced, the scene vanished. A cruel mirage, in its mysterious way, had outlined the lake and cast our shadows near its shore. Disappointment intensified our burning thirst, and my good mother gave her own and other suffering children wee lumps of sugar, moistened with a drop of peppermint, and later put a flattened bullet in each child's mouth to engage its attention and help keep the salivary glands in action. Then followed soul-trying hours. Oxen, foot-sore and weary, stumbled under their yokes. Women, heart-sick and exhausted, could walk no farther. As a last resort, the men hung the water-pails on their arms, unhooked the oxen from the wagons, and by persuasion and force drove them onward, leaving the women and children to await their return. Misters Eddie and Graves got their animals to water on the night of the twelfth, and the others later. As soon as the poor beasts were refreshed, they were brought back with water for the suffering, and also that they might draw the wagons on to camp. My father's wagons were the last taken out. They reached camp the morning of the fifteenth. Thirty-six head of cattle were left on that desert, some dead, some lost. Among the lost were all Mr. Reed's herd, except an ox and a cow. His poor beasts had become frenzied in the night as they were being driven toward the water, and with a strength that comes with madness had rushed away in the darkness. Meanwhile, Mr. Reed, unconscious of his misfortune, was returning to his family, which he found by his wagon some distance in the rear. At daylight, he, with his wife and children on foot, overtook my uncle Jacob's wagons and were carried forward in them until their own were brought up. After hurriedly making camp, all the men turned out to hunt the reed cattle. In every direction they searched, but found no clue. Those who rode onward, however, discovered that we had reached only an oasis in the desert, and that six miles ahead of us lay another pitiless barren stretch. Anguish and dismay now filled all hearts. Husbands bowed their heads, appalled at the situation of their families. Some cursed Hastings for the false statements in his open letter and for his broken pledge at Fort Bridger. They cursed him also for his misrepresentation of the distance across this cruel desert, traversing which had wrought such suffering and loss. Mothers in tearless agony clasped their children to their bosoms with the old, old cry, Father, thy will, not mine, be done. It was plain that, try as we might, we could not get back to Fort Bridger. We must proceed regardless of the fearful outlook. After earnest consultation, it was deemed best to dig a trench and cache all Mr. Reed's effects, except such as could be packed into one wagon, and were essential for daily use. This accomplished, Misters Graves and Breen each loaned him an ox, and these, in addition to his own ox and cow yoke together, formed his team. Upon examination, it was found that the woodwork of all the wagons had been shrunk and cracked by the dry atmosphere. 
One of Mr. Kesseberg's and one of my father's were in such bad condition that they were abandoned, left standing near those of Mr. Reed, as we passed out of camp. The first snow of the season fell as we were crossing the narrow strip of land upon which we had rested, and when we encamped for the night on its boundary. The waste before us was as cheerless, cold, and white as the winding sheet which enfolds the dead. At dawn we resumed our toilful march, and traveled until four o'clock the following morning, when we reached an extensive valley, where grass and water were plentiful. Several oxen had died during the night, and it was with a caress of pity that the surviving were relieved of their yokes for the day. The next sunrise saw us on our way over a range of hills, sloping down to a valley, luxuriant with grass and springs of delicious water, where antelope and mountain sheep were grazing, and where we saw Indians who seemed never to have met white men before. We were three days in crossing this magnificent stretch of country, which we called Valley of Fifty Springs. In it, several wagons and large cases of goods were cached by our company, and secret marks were put on trees nearby so that they could be recovered should their owners return for them. While on the desert, my father's wagons had traveled last in the train, in order that no one should stray or be left to die alone. But as soon as we reached the mountainous country, he took the lead to open the way. Uncle Jacob's wagons were always close to ours, for the two brothers worked together, one responding when the other called for help, and with the assistance of their teamsters, they were able to free the trail of many obstructions and prevent unnecessary delays. From the Valley of Fifty Springs, we pursued a southerly course over more hills and through fertile valleys, where we saw Indians in a state of nudity, who looked at us from a distance, but never approached our wagons nor molested anyone. On the 24th of September, we turned due north and found the tracks of wagon wheels, which guided us to the valley of Mary's River, or Ogden's River, and on the 30th, put us on the old emigrant road leading from Fort Hall. This welcome landmark inspired us with renewed trust, and the energizing hope that Stanton and McCutcheon would soon appear strengthened our solely tried courage. This day was also memorable, because it brought us a number of Indians who must have been Fremont's guides, for they could give information and understand a little English. They went into camp with us, and by word and sign explained that we were still far from the sink of Mary's River, but on the right trail to it. After another long day's drive, we stopped on a mountainside, close to a spring of cold, sweet water. While supper was being prepared, one of the fires crept beyond bounds, spread rapidly, and threatened the destruction to part of our train. At the critical moment, two strange Indians rushed upon the scene and rendered good service. After the fire was extinguished, the Indians were rewarded and were also given a generous meal at the tent of Mr. Graves. Later, they settled themselves in friendly fashion beside his fire and were soon fast asleep. Next morning, the Indians were gone and had taken with them a new shirt and a yoke of good oxen belonging to their host. Within the week, Indians again sneaked up to camp and stole one of Mr. Graves' saddle horses. 
These were trials which made men swear vengeance, yet no one felt it would be safe to follow the marauders. Who could know that the train was not being stealthily followed by cunning plunderers who would await their chance to get away with the wagons if left weakly guarded? Conditions were now such that it seemed best to divide the train into sections and put each section under a sub-leader. Our men were well equipped with sidearms, rifles, and ammunition. Nevertheless, anxious moments were common as the wagons moved slowly and singly through the dense thickets, narrow defiles, and rugged mountain gorges, one section often being out of sight of the others, and each man realizing that there could be no concerted action in the event of a general attack, that each must stay by his own wagon and defend as best he could the lives committed to his care. No one rode horseback now except the leaders and those in charge of the loose cattle. When darkness obscured the way, and after feeding time, each section formed its wagons into a circle to serve as cattle corral, and night watches were keenly alert to give a still alarm if anything unusual came within sight or sound. Day after day, from dawn to twilight, we moved onward, never stopping, except to give the oxen the necessary nooning, or to give them drink when water was available. Gradually, the distance between sections lengthened, and so it happened that the wagons of my father and my uncle were two days in advance of the others. On the 8th of October, when Mr. Reed, on horseback, overtook us, he was haggard and in great tribulation. His lips quivered as he gave substantially the following account of circumstances which had made him the slayer of his friend and a lone wanderer in the wilderness. On the morning of October 5, when Mr. Reed's section broke camp, he and Mr. Eddy ventured off to hunt antelope, and were shot at a number of times by Indians with bows and arrows. Empty-handed and disappointed, the two followed and overtook their companions about noon at the foot of a steep hill near Gravelly Ford, where the teams had to be doubled for the ascent. All the wagons, except Pikes and Reed's, and one of the Graves's in charge of John Snyder, had already been taken to the top. Snyder was in the act of starting his team when Milton Elliot, driving Reed's oxen with Eddie's in the lead, also started. Suddenly, the Reed and Eddie cattle became unmanageable and in some way got mixed up with Snyder's team. This provoked both drivers and fierce words passed between them. Snyder declared that the Reed team ought to be made to drag its wagon up without help. Then he began to beat his own cattle about the head to get them out of the way. Mr. Reed attempted to remonstrate with him for his cruelty, at which Snyder became more enraged and threatened to strike both Reed and Elliot with his whip for interfering. Mr. Reed replied sharply that they would settle the matter later. This Snyder took as a threat, and retorted, No, we'll settle it right here, and struck Reed over the head with the butt end of his whip, cutting an ugly scalp wound. Mrs. Reed, who rushed between the two men for the purpose of separating them, caught the force of the second blow from Snyder's whip on her shoulder. While dodging the third blow, Reed drew his hunting knife and stabbed Snyder in the left breast. Fifteen minutes later, John Snyder, with his head resting on the arm of William Graves, 
died, and Mr. Reed stood beside the corpse, dazed and sorrowful. Nearby sections were immediately called into camp, and gloom, consternation, and anger pervaded it. Mr. Reed and family were taken to their tent some distance from the others and guarded by their friends. Later, an assembly was convened to decide what should be done. The majority declared the deed murder and demanded retribution. Mr. Eddy and others pleaded extenuating circumstances and proposed that the accused should leave the camp. After heated discussion, this compromise was adopted, the assembly voting that Mr. Reed should be banished from the company. Mr. Reed maintained that the deed was not prompted by malice, that he had acted in self-defense and in defense of his wife, and that he would not be driven from his helpless, dependent family. The assembly promised that the company would care for his family and limited his stay in camp. His wife, fearing the consequence of non-compliance with the sentence, begged him to abide by it and to push on to the settlement procure food and assistance, and return for her and their children. The following morning, after participating in the funeral rites over the lamented dead, Mr. Reed took leave of his friends and sorrowing family, and left the camp. The group around my father's wagon were deeply touched by Mr. Reed's narrative. Its members were friends of the slain and of the slayer. Their sympathies clustered around the memory of the dead and clung to the living. They deplored the death of a fellow traveler who had manly faced many hardships and was young, genial, and full of promise. They regretted the act which took from the company a member who had been prominent in its organization, had helped to formulate its rules, and had, up to that unfortunate hour, been a co-worker with the other leading spirits for its best interests. It was plain that the hardships and misfortunes of the journey had sharpened the tempers of both men, and the vexations of the morning had been too much for the overstrained nerves. Mr. Reed breakfasted at our tent, but did not continue his journey alone. Walter Heron, one of my father's helpers, decided to accompany him, and after hurried preparations, they went away together, bearing an urgent appeal from my father to Captain Sutter, for necessary teams and provisions to carry the company through to California, also his personal pledge in writing that he would be responsible for the payment of the debt as soon as he should reach the settlement. My father believed the two men would reach their destination long before the slowly moving train. Immediately after the departure of Mr. Reed and Heron, our wagons moved onward. Night overtook us at a gruesome place where wood and feed were scarce, and every drop of water was browned by alkali. There hungry wolves howled, and there we found and buried the bleaching bones of Mr. Sally, a member of the Hastings train, who had been shot by Indians. After his companions had left his grave, the savages had returned, dug up the body, robbed it of its clothing, and left it to the wolves. At four o'clock the following morning, October 10, the rest of the company, having traveled all night, drove into camp. Many were in a state of great excitement, and some almost frenzied by the physical and mental suffering they had endured. Accounts of the Reed-Snyder tragedy differed somewhat from that we had already heard. The majority held that the assembly had been lenient with Mr. Reed and considerate for his family, 
that the action taken had been largely influenced by rules which Messrs. Reed, Donner, Thornton, and others had suggested for the government of Colonel Russell's train, and that there was no occasion for criticism since the sentence was for the transgression and not for the individual. The loss of aged Mr. Hardcoop, whose fate was sealed soon after the death of John Snyder, was the subject of bitter contention. The old man was traveling with the Kesseberg family, and in the heavy sand, when that family walked to lighten the load, he was required to do likewise. The first night, after leaving Gravelly Ford, he did not come into camp with the rest. The company, fearing something amiss, set a man on horseback to bring him in. He was found five miles from camp, completely exhausted, and his feet in a terrible condition. The following morning he again started with Kesseberg, and when the section had been under way only a short time, the old man approached Mr. Eddy and begged for a place in some other wagon, saying he was sick and exhausted, and that Kesseberg had put him out to die. The road was still through deep, loose sand, and Mr. Eddy told him if he would only manage to go forward until the road should be easier on the oxen, he himself would take him in. Hardcoop promised to try, yet the roads became so heavy that progress was yet slower, and even the small children were forced to walk, nor did anyone see when Mr. Hardcoop dropped behind. Mr. Eddy had the first watch that night, and kept a bright fire burning on the hillside, in hopes that it would guide the belated into camp. Milton Elliot went on guard at midnight, and kept the fire till morning, yet neither sign nor sound of the missing came over that desolate trail. In vain the watchers now besought Kesseberg to return for Hardcoop. Next they applied to Messrs. Graves and Breen, who alone had saddle-horses able to carry the helpless man, but neither of them would risk his animals again on that perilous road. In desperation, Messrs. William Pike, Milton Elliot, and William Eddy proposed to go out afoot and carry him in, if the wagons would wait. Messrs. Grave and Breen, however, in language so plain and homely that it seemed heartless, declared that it was neither the voice of common sense nor of humanity that asked the wagons to wait there in the face of danger, while three foolhardy men rushed back to look for a helpless one, whom they had been unable to succor on the previous day, and for whom they could make no provision in the future, even if they should succeed in them snatching him from the jaws of death. This exposition of undeniable facts defeated the plans of the would-be rescuers, yet did not quiet their consciences. When the section halted at noon, they again begged, though in vain, for horses which might enable them to do something for their deserted companion. My father listened thoughtfully to the accounts of that harrowing incident, and although he realized that death must have ended the old man's sufferings within a few hours after he dropped by the wayside, he could not but feel deeply the bitterness of such a fate. Who could peer into the near future and read between its lines the greater suffering which Mr. Hardcoop had escaped or the trials in store for us? We were in close range of ambushed savages lying in wait for spoils. While the company were hurrying to get into marching order, Indians stole a milk cow and several horses belonging to Mr. Graves. Emboldened by success, they made a raid on our next camp and stampeded a bunch of eighteen-horned cattle belonging to Mr. Wolfinger 
and my father, and Uncle Jacob, and also flesh-wounded several poor beasts with arrows. These were more serious hindrances than we had yet experienced. Still, undaunted by the alarming prospects before us, we immediately resumed travel with cows under yoke in place of the freshly injured oxen. End of chapter 5